We are reading from Matthew chapter 23 and verse 37. Matthew 23 and verse 37. Now, we continue to be in this Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life, and He just is about to conclude His public ministry. He started His public ministry three years before this at the Passover, and now, so there's been, uh, there was that first Passover, the second the third, and now, now there's just this fourth Passover that he's going to die on this fourth Passover. So there were three complete years of ministry. If one were to say that his ministry started at the wedding of Cana in Galilee, then it would be just a few months before this. But as far as an open public ministry, it started uh, uh, in the temple compound area at the Passover, and, and uh, it's going to end in the temple compound area at the Passover. And so it was a three-year ministry, just about to hit that, that, that fourth uh, Passover where Jesus is going to be crucified. Uh, and it says in verse 37, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Now, Matthew 23, verse 38 Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So if you remember, there was this, this just incendiary talk from Jesus last week where he just let it loose on the scribes and the Pharisees. And he proclaimed to them the things that were going to come upon them. And his last words in this public proclamation, or one could even say now it's a lamentation, is in, he's saying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. So, he doesn't say, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this city set on a hill. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, this city with great walls, or this city with great history. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. He's reminding them that so often throughout history, God has tried to reach out to them. Tried to reach out to them. He says, personally, I, Jesus says, how often I wanted to gather your children. This is the children of Jerusalem. Gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. In Greek it says, and you willed it not. You willed it not. What's interesting is so often in our lives, the Lord wants to get a hold of our lives and to do His ways, have His ways just just permeate our lives because He knows that which is good for us. But we will it not. We are unwilling. Remember, He never forces His love upon us. He never forces His way upon us. What He does is He displays it. But we have the opportunity to accept it or reject it. And these people had rejected it. And He reminds them, I sent to you prophets. You've heard the Word of God. But you've made a choice to go another way. This is what He's telling them. He says, so often I wanted to gather your children together. Remember, the best thing that you can do for somebody, you want to become friends with somebody, do something good for their children. 
the best thing that he could have done for this city is to just embrace them like children. And he says, I longed to do this, but you willed it not. You were unwilling. In verse 38, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he says to them, Your house is being left to you desolate, because in approximately 40 years from this time, Jerusalem will be destroyed. Everyone in it will be killed. The Romans killed everyone. And we'll talk about how those who were believers in him were able to escape that destruction. But those that did not know him, every one of them was killed in that Roman destruction of of 70 AD, about 40 years after this event when he's speaking this. He says, For I say to you, from now on you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord will not return. His second coming will not come until the leadership of Israel welcomes him back. How can I be so sure? Because that's exactly what the Bible says. We have no date or time or anything when there's, there's nothing, there's no requirements for when the rapture could come, when those believers in Christ are taken. That can occur at any moment. But as, as far as the events of when Jesus is going to make His second coming, it will only come when the leadership of Israel asks Him to come and says, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. This is exactly the same thing that He said when He proclaimed upon them the, the, uh, the sin, the unpardonable sin. For they're rejecting Him Once they saw him on the basis of demon possession, and we've covered that. And so you see that he reiterates this again. You're not going to see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. His second coming is going to be upon the leadership of Israel, saying, We welcome you back. And if you look at the leadership of Israel today, they're not ready to say, We welcome you, Lord Jesus, back. So that's why he's probably not going to come today unless they all of a sudden today welcome him back. That's, that's the precondition that Jesus himself set upon his second coming. And then if you look at this, this is how you can begin to understand. Jews will often say, and I know this because I grew up in a Jew and Jewish home, why did the Crusades come against us? Why did the pogroms come against us? Why did the Holocaust come against us? If you look at anti-Semitism, it has always been there and continues to be there. Whether it's religious or cultural or, 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 or theological, it will continue to be there. Because you can see Satan's motivation. Satan's motivation is that, that if he can keep the leadership of Israel from saying, from welcoming Jesus back, Satan is secure. Once Jesus returns, he's finished. That is the end for him. So what he can do is he can exterminate the Jews so that never again will the Jews welcome him back. His attack has been particularly on the Jews throughout the generations and will continue to be because this is the attack of Satan. So whether you, if you have a feeling of anti-Semitism, I can tell you where that feeling is from. It's not from God. 
It may be a social feeling. It may be a cultural feeling. It may be a religious feeling. But I assure you it's not from God. Because until the Jewish leadership says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a quote from Psalm 118. Quoting from the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 118. Until they say that, he will not return. And this is why so important to us should be evangelism to the Jewish people. Bringing them to Jesus. The more of them that come, the more that they will begin to impact. And the Messianic Jews, there's several movements now among Messianic Jews. There's only about 150,000 of us in the world. So there's not a lot of us. There's 7.5 million Jews in all of Israel. And Messianic Jews are beginning to have an impact now in Israel. And there are Messianic Jews that, that are going to be running very soon for parliament to try to get parliament seats and start having positions of leadership. And, and people are recognizing how much these people are blessing their communities. And uh, uh, that's not to say that everybody is it, recognizing it, but there is recognition now. And until the leadership comes, it was rejection of the leadership and the rejection by the leadership and the people followed in that rejection. It is going to be the turning of the leadership and then the recovery of it. And we can read about this also in the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, there's going to be 144,000 Jews that are going to evangelize. But anyway, we'll study that later. But you can understand the seeds of anti-Semitism. Because if you can exterminate the Jewish people, the Lord does not return. It will not happen until the leadership of Israel says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If it was just anyone saying it, why doesn't he come? I mean, you guys just say it out. Jesus will come back. It's not going to happen until the leadership of Israel says to him, come back. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they shout the Messianic Psalm. Psalm 118. This is the last words of Jesus' public ministry. We've studied for three and a half years. We've studied from the birth of Jesus to this time. This is the last words of His public ministry. And now He starts instructing His disciples for the remainder of this week. You will hear words of Jesus at His defense during His trial. But this is the last words of His public ministry. And now He starts walking out. And as He's walking out of the temple compound, He passes through the treasury. He's passing through the treasury area. So if you look in Mark chapter 12, So he says those last words, profound words, he says. Now he's passing through the treasury area. And this is in Mark chapter 12. We're going to be reading it verse 41. Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And as he's passing through the the, the treasury area, this is now with his disciples. The, 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 The Pharisees are no longer there. The scribes are no longer there. So Mark chapter 12, verse 41. And he sat down opposite the treasury... And he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums of money. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amounts to a cent. This is in Mark chapter 12, now verse 43. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. So Jesus is moving from this very intense time where he spoke a long portion to the scribes and to the Pharisees, condemning them 
for their actions. And then closing and saying, I'm not gonna, you're not going to see my face again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, speaking of his second coming. He goes and he goes into the treasury area and he's in no hurry to get out. It says, he sat down opposite the treasury. So he sits down. And he starts watching because now is a preparation time for the apostles. He's preparing his apostles. And he starts observing. And then after his observing, he, he, and it says he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. There were 13 boxes in the treasury area and 13 chests with, with an opening in, in the top of each one. And you can read about it in Jewish writings. Some were for paying taxes for that year. So you had to pay taxes to the Roman government. That was separate. But you had to pay taxes in Israel according to what was prescribed. There was another one to pay taxes in case you had not paid taxes last year. You could pay it. There was another box for the different offerings. There was another box set there. So you would come often to Jerusalem. You would buy an animal and sacrifice that animal that had been approved by the priests. You could bring an animal, but often they would deem your animal not, not approved because they wanted you to buy one of theirs. That was part of the bazaar of Ennis, where he would abuse the people in that way. If you had leftover money from purchasing an animal, say you got a better deal than you had expected, there was a box there to put in the extra money. So there were many, there were 13 boxes there. And uh, some of them had to do with what the law prescribed. Some of them had to do not with what the law prescribed, but with what, what men had prescribed. And Jesus was watching people put in money. You say, well, what, what's it of his business? Well, he's God. How's that? I mean, is, is that good enough? And, and, it, and it says, uh, he was watching them put money in the treasury and many rich people were coming in and putting in large sums. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know, do you wave it around? I mean, how, how do you know it's that large of a sum? I don't know, you carry it in a wheelbarrow? But anyway, they were putting in large sums of money. They were putting it in. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. This is the, the, the widow's mite that some you may have heard of. And the minimum that you could put in there was two mites, two of these, these copper pennies. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow, put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she put in, she out of her poverty put in all she owned, all she had to live on. So many people will, will say to me, you know, there, there's nothing in the New Testament about paying the tithe. And that's absolutely right. Paying the tithe is Old Testament. There are a few examples of people giving in the New Testament. In the book of Acts, it says they gave everything. Here, this widow gave everything. So, if you'd prefer to follow that example, that you could follow that one too, if you like. That, that's a pattern. To rich people in the New Testament, it actually says in, in the, in the uh, epistles, which are our books of instruction, it says that we are to be generous. We are to be generous. And we're going to look at this today. And I, I, I hate talking about money. I didn't want to talk about this. But what happens to me is that as I prepare for the week's teaching, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll read the passage. I'll say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me from this passage. And, 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 and then I, I, I moved on in, into the prophecies of, of, of his second coming, which he's about to speak about. And just nothing was coming to me. And he just kept drawing me back to this. 
It's much easier for me to stand here and talk about giving of money than it is for the pastor. Because the pastor, people will always say, well, you know, he's going to benefit from this. I don't benefit from any money that you give to the church. Nor have I taken any money from any student to assist us with any parts of the ministry. If you want to give, you go ahead and you give to the church. You don't want to give, you don't give. But even if you were to give a million dollars, it wouldn't affect my salary. It would take my salary and multiply it times a million, and my salary for this wouldn't change. Okay? And, and so this doesn't affect me. This is all about you. It's all about an effect on you. So let, let's talk about this. Let's turn to, to uh, Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. And remember, the epistles are our book of instruction. Philippians chapter 4, verse 15. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. So he is telling the Philippians, this was a great church. He says, you were the only church that would just, just, just uh, 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 give after I left Macedonia. You're the only church after I left Macedonia. No church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Now the Macedonians gave, we're, we're going to see. But after he left Macedonia, no one gave. He says, even when I was in Thessalonica ministering in another church, you from your church sent money to support me to minister in that church. You see what I mean? So, so they had this sort of mission emphasis in their mind. But then he says in verse 17, something quite telling. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. When we are giving when one is giving, there is profit that is coming into our account. How can that be? I'm giving it away. I'm not, I'm not putting it in, 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 in another account. I'm giving it away. You would think my account would go down. But he says, no, your account is going up. When you give, your account goes up. This is what happens in life. When you are a generous giver, your life is blessed. You receive more blessings when you are a generous giver. Your children will do better in life if you are a generous giver because they'll learn generosity. And generous people are a whole lot happier than stingier, stingy people. If you were to look at this just based on the human element alone, you would think that the, the stingy person would be happy. Why? Because they have it all to themselves. They can get whatever they want now, all for themselves. People who have everything all for themselves are always the least happy people. Look at the movie stars who have everything. Everything is about them. Wherever they go, everybody wants their autograph. Everybody wants the picture. And they're always in drugs and killing themselves and broken marriages. It doesn't surprise us whenever we hear that you know, two movie stars get married and a month later they're divorced. Not surprised. Why is this? They're the least happy people. They are the least fulfilled people. It is those that give that are constantly fulfilled. He says, there is going to be great profit to your account. And you say, well, when I have money, then I'll give. That's a lie. That's a lie. You start now. I mean, I was an, I was an undergraduate. My parents sent me a monthly allowance. 
And I always took of that and I would give it to my local church, a portion of that, and give it to my local church. And anytime I got a summer job, I took of that and gave a portion of it to my local church. You give where you're at. You say, well, when you make more, you'll give. It's a lie. You give whatever you're at, wherever you're at. If you make $20 a month, give a portion of it. $2 of that wouldn't be a bad place to start. That's where the Scriptures say we should start. You give a portion of that and you will be a much happier person. Your children will be much happier. Your life will be much happier because the more selfish you are, the less happy you are. The more giving you are, the happier you are. This is the principle that he lays down. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 10. Or is, is he speaking altogether for our sakes? Yes, for our sakes it was written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endured all things so that we, we, we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel." So what does Paul say? Paul says that we sowed into your life spiritual things. You owe us material things and sustenance. There are those who make their living from the gospel. In other words, it is up to us to support them. If I came to church without supporting the church in which I participate, I would feel as if I am a thief. I am obliged, I am personally obliged to give to this local fellowship. Because this is where I receive teaching from people. This is where I receive blessing. This is where, where you know, we are sitting now in an air-conditioned room. How does it get air-conditioned? We are sitting in a room with, with carpeting, with a microphone. Where does it come from? It doesn't, boom, just appear. People have given for this. And you give. It says that it is our responsibility. He says, does not the farmer, doesn't the farmer get to have a portion of his crops? I mean, this is just logical. Now, Paul says, I didn't take any of this from you, Corinthians. He even goes on to say, I robbed other churches for your sake. In other words, churches like the Philippian church was giving was supporting me so that I could minister to you because you guys were too cheap to give anything. This is what he's saying. And it's much easier for me to stand up and say this because I don't make anything for doing this. Rice University pays my salary and they take care of me. I leave this for those who preach the gospel for a living. He says this is our responsibility. He's actually chastising them for their cheapness, for their stinginess. This is what he says. You learn to give wherever you're at. And you won't really care about anything until you learn to give. 
I can't just say, well, you know, I didn't like the message today that the, the pastor shared. I think I'll just go to another church. No way. I'm invested here. I mean, when you pay for something, you care about it. I can't just walk out on my family. You know how much I've invested of my life into my wife and into my children? Yes, they've invested back. So we're together. When you invest in something, you value it. When you never invest in anything, you don't care. You don't care about the stock market because you're not invested in the stock market. When you get a real job and you start getting stock options, you're going to be checking the stock market all the time. And when the stock market drops 250 points, you're going to go, whoa. You don't even know that the stock market dropped 300 points this past week. You don't even know that, do you? Most of you don't even know. But if you were invested in the market, you would know that. You'd go, oh, retirement account. I mean, just, where's it gone? Why? Because when you're invested in something, then you care. Before that, you just flat out don't care. You can go visit a foreign country and they're having, you know, a little bit of, you know, social problems or turmoil. You really don't care because that's not your country. You're not invested. But when you're part of a community, when you buy a house, when you buy a house and when you have children, all of a sudden you're going to become really concerned about the community in which you live. You're going to be really concerned about crime. You're going to be really concerned about roads. You're going to be really concerned about school. Now you don't care at all about this. You don't care. Do you know anything about the schools right around? No. You only care about rice. Are my classes available? That's all you care about. Because that's the only place where you're invested. Let's turn to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to start reading from verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given to the churches of Macedonia. So now he's praising Macedonia to the Corinthian church. He's praising Macedonia that in great that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of the liberality. What does that mean? He says Macedonia is a poor church. But out of their poverty, they overflowed with liberality. That was a giving church. He's telling the Corinthians this. Why? Because he's using this in contradistinction to what the Corinthians were doing. For I testified that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. The Macedonian church was begging, Paul, take some money. We want to support the saints in other churches where there's need. And Paul is like, no, don't worry about it. You guys don't have much. They said, no, please grant us the favor of giving. Isn't that amazing? Please take it. Please take it and give it to the churches that don't have much. He's like, you guys are suffering. You don't have anything yourself. He says, we want to give. He says, please grant us this favor. In verse 5, And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. They first gave themselves to the Lord. If you have not accepted Jesus in your heart, this, this message is not for you. I'm not saying you give to this church. First, get yourself saved. 
This is what you need to do. But if you've accepted Jesus, now start walking in the commandments of the Scriptures for us. There are expectations upon our lives. If His favor has come upon our life, there are expectations in this. The widow gave out of her sustenance the things that sustained her, not out of her surplus. If you think, well, then when I'm rich, then I'll give something. No, that'll be out of your surplus anyway. You're going to be just fine. This, what we give, should affect our lifestyle. If you're giving a dollar doesn't affect how you're going to live, that giving was not enough. That's the lesson from the widow's might. When you give, it should keep you from being able to do certain things that you would want to do. I know believers that, that they never took vacations. For years and years, they never, their vacations were just visiting family because they wanted to be able to give. They would take whatever vacation funds they would have had and they'd give it away. I know other believers that never, never had a new car. I mean, because they just, just wanted to give. I'm not coming against vacations or new cars. I'm just saying there are sacrifices. Until it becomes out of your sustenance, Jesus says it, there's nothing from all these rich people because it never came out of their sustenance. Then he, 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 let, let's look at, uh, let's close with this, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. So just turn over to the next page to chapter 9 and we're going to start reading from verse 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, reading from verse, uh, let's start reading from verse um, verse 6. Verse 6. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. You know, I, I don't like to pull verses out of context. So I don't, I'm not going to go to Luke chapter 6 and talk about how if you give, it'll be given to you overflowing into your lap. Because the whole context of Luke chapter 6 is not judging your neighbor. If you don't judge, people will use that out of context. The whole context of this portion of this chapter is monetary giving. That is the whole context of this. And he says, I say to you, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. My observation in life, those who are giving to the point where they are sacrificing things out of their own enjoyment because they've given it away are much, much happier people. And those who are cheap and keep it to themselves and give only to the extent that it's from their surplus, that it doesn't hit them in some hard way. They are less happy. Their children do less well in life. You want good for your children? Learn to be gracious. Learn to be giving. But first, give yourself to the Lord. If you don't know the Lord, I ask of you. Now, remember what the Lord said. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Then he went on and he said, I have longed to gather your children together as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were unwilling. Don't keep passing this by. You will come to a point where it won't be as easy for you to accept the Lord. There's going to be, life has, has a way of just dealing blows toward us. In this time, come to the Lord. 
Give your heart to Jesus. Give your heart to Jesus. While he's there, give your heart to Jesus. And Jesus then said to them, you didn't receive me. And you're not going to see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There is a time that it's going to come that's going to be much harder for you to receive the Lord. And there's going to be many other things. The time has come. Give yourself first to the Lord. But if you've given yourself to the Lord, be generous. Be generous with your money and you won't value anything until you invest in it. If you never give to this church, you won't care about this church and you'll go somewhere else every Sunday. It wouldn't bother you a bit. But you'll never understand the joy of investing in something and reaping bountifully because of that investment. I look at what happened to my children as being a part of this church, this body of Christ. Awana programs, they would just come here. My, my two boys were little boys when we moved here and they loved this church. And they learned the Word of God here and they, they would learn to sing and they'd be in all these skits. And my daughters came here when they were teenagers and they got involved in the youth groups and went out on mission trips. It has done so much for my family. And they've stood with us when we've had sickness, when we've been in times of, of, of troubles and needs. They were there for us. And I suspect they will be in the future when our needs might come. You'll never know this. You'll never know it if you don't give something. This is why I talk about membership. You, you can come here all you want. You don't have to become a member of this church. But then there's no accountability. I want to be a member because I want the accountability. I am under the leadership of my pastor. I don't want to be outside of leadership. Membership here is so easy. You can even have this watch care membership where you can keep your membership at your home place and it's simple. And all they'll ask you is, have you been baptized? If you've not been baptized, they'll ask you, have you been saved? If you've not been saved, they'll try to get you saved. And if you're saved and you've not been baptized, they'll get you baptized so you can walk in obedience. That's it. I mean, some churches have big hurdles. That's great. Our church has a little hurdle. That's what the leadership has decided. You just come and go and come and go. You'll never know it until you become invested. Then you'll start to care about it. He who sows sparingly reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully reaps bountifully. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. I pray, Lord, First of all, that those who don't know You would not be like those leaders in Israel who willed it not that Jesus would come and minister to their lives. Who willed it not that Jesus would surround them with His love and protect them. Father, I pray that You would soften the hearts here of those who have never yet accepted You. Soften their hearts, Lord, that they would accept You. Father, soften their hearts, I pray Thee, that they would accept You. Father, I pray that they would open their hearts and delay no longer, that even now they would say, Lord Jesus, forgive me because I am a sinner. Come into my life. Forgive me and come into my life. And Father, I pray for those here that know You, that they would become generous people, that they would learn how to invest, that they would not be robbing 
by not partaking and giving. Father, that You would teach them Your ways. Father, teach them Your ways, I pray. Let them learn to be gracious and then to accrue for an account that is an eternal account. Father, have mercy on their souls, I pray, and teach them Your ways. In the name of Jesus, Amen.